HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're looking at factors that will shape our food world in 2019. We start with trend predictions and how media covers them. A website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. We report on a big change coming and how street meat will be served. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. And we round out the episode with a story about using gene editing to create the spicy tomato of the future. At first, it sounds like a, like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. It's not too late to make your resolution. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode this year. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, from the Hudson River to the Caspian Basin, Siberian to Kaluga, Craig Page of Pearl Street Caviar tells us one of those fish stories about the Triassic era sturgeon. That's, you know, pre-dinosaur. And it's exotic eggs we call caviar. A luxury to most, caviar isn't for celebrating, you know, only with extravagance. It's nutrient-dense, full of omega-3s, memory-boosting clo-line. It's got better B12 than beef and more iron than spinach. And what Pearl Street Caviar hopes to do is bring caviar back to the Hudson River, a waterway that 200 years ago was the largest producer of caviar in the world. Now, that's wild to me because I grew up on the Hudson. I grew up in Croton-on-Hudson, and it's not a caviar town. (laughs) No, no, no longer. (laughs) It's still a beautiful place, but the Hudson, the Hudson as a watershed has changed. I, I didn't expect the caviar show to hit so close to home. You grew up in the neighborhood I live in now, in the Bocaco, the, the Cobble Hill, Carroll Gardens area of downtown Brooklyn. And it's funny, uh, as, as a you know, family of, what, five kids? Indeed. Yeah, I'm sure you had caviar on the table all the time. Never. <laughs> but that your first experience with fish row was the Terra Masolata at Zahati's, one of my favorite places to go shopping. 
Yes. Um, I'd say when I was having that, I didn't know that the, you know, I would eventually, uh, the definition of row in my name, would, in my mind would change, and uh, I would stumble upon caviar later in life. We'll talk later in this episode about the descriptors you use for caviar. I think they're some of the best tasting notes I've ever read of any product. But what were your tasting notes of that terra masolata? What was it about that row which, uh, um, you know, kind of stuck in the back of your memory? Um, it was kind of rich saltiness on, on the pita bread. Um, and also an interesting kind of, kind of popping texture within the kind of mayo-y base. Um, it was delicious. And again, growing up as, as one of five, what was it at the table that, that felt as exalted as caviar? Did you guys ever have celebrations? Was there ever a tin opened or cracked? Um, never a tin of caviar opened or cracked. Um, maybe mussels and oil, maybe a nice cheese. Um, that's pretty much where, where it would top out. So it, it's very funny reading about your, your collegiate career. Um, it had nothing to do about food. I mean, I guess you were surrounded by good food, maybe, but you studied advancements in technology and how they affect we as people in society and how those interactions are measured. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, that, that has bogged me down on every job interview <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> um, so I, I like my, my thesis was on the existence of an ethical limit to human enhancement. So it was basically like, you know, go to the hospital when you're sick, see your doctor, but don't take steroids. It was right in line when uh, that South African Blade Runner was kind of at the, the top of the page. Um, and he was competing in both the Paralympics and the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Pastorius. Um, indeed, indeed. His story has evolved a <laughs> yes. lot since then. But <laughs> I'm glad we didn't tape this pre all that stuff happening and like have to cut half the episode. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, it was really just how technology was um, influencing how one could kind of predestine one's own offspring through maybe some gene therapy, and whether that was actually ethically sound, just according to kind of like a, a small survey of philosophers. Is, is consulting for startup businesses of a similar mind then? <laughs> yes, it's exactly the same. And it, product market fit, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to think that, you know, there are so many ethics that are involved in trying to start a small company. Um, let, let's roll that into the fact that you are now a small company owner. Um, mm -hmm. How would you consult? Well, it's a little meta to say this, but if you were an outsider looking at Pearl Street Caviar, what would you say to that company you know, as an advisor, how would you grow this company? What what are the pitfalls of becoming a caviar distributor producer? Um, I would say, given my my current level of experience, I would say you know, be careful with the cold chain. It's 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 something that a lot of people kind of struggle with, but also there are you know a lot of a lot of sustainable products out there that have made it um, actually smoother than it used to be. Um, and then, you know, it, it's listening to the customers. It's figuring out what makes them, what makes them hungry for caviar. What, what will make them kind of not associate it with something that is not, not approachable, doesn't really belong in their lives. Well, I mean, aside from the Terra Masolata, I feel like your first association was being on the Hudson River. Um, you worked with a Danish sailor, um, 
a company that offered experience-based training and developmental programming on sailboats. <laughs> right. Uh, tell me about that and what being a sea uh, means to Pearl Street Caviar. Okay. I mean, that, that, that adventure was um, kind of providing um, experiences to small executive teams um, and kind of taking everyone to a place they'd never been, so they were just kind of equally new at it. So therefore, when you're out on the out on the New York Harbor, out on Hudson River, and there, you know, ferries zipping past and f- back and forth. There's, you know, it's summer, it's humid, it's windy. Um, everyone's equally equally clueless, <laughs> and therefore, you know, the the new admin and the CEO are actually communicating on a very new and different level. Is caviar similar? I think there are <laughs> many many parallels between caviar and that experience. Yeah. People are very foreign to it. And once they've gotten a taste of it, they typically like it a lot. And so it's wild to think that 200 years ago, uh, the Hudson River was full of these eight-foot-large fish jumping up and down that, that, you know, carried some of the best caviar in the world. I mean, you've done a little bit of historical research into this, right? Yeah. Um, why are there no longer sturgeon swimming in those water? Well, the sturgeon, they're very big fish, and they're also... They're pretty late to spawn in their life cycle, somewhere between 10 and 15 years. So once there's kind of the, a large demand for the caviar and there's not a lot of regulation, they typically get overfished and they take a very long time to rebound. So I'd say right now we're still waiting for the rebound. And also there's um, water quality issues with the Hudson um, that have also been improving a lot lately. This is a fish that's been around before the dinosaurs. Um, when did they stop being a sturgeon and start being caviar? Um, I mean, I've read that the ancient Macedonians were eating caviar. Um, and then it's just continued through, like, in Eastern Europe, just where they're, they're so native to the watershed. Um, it's been around since, you know, the, I think at least the 13th century it's been written about. Um, it's kind of a mainstay. And the, the prices and availability of caviar swing wildly, um, throughout throughout recent history yeah yeah when did when did it become a caspian bay when did it become a russian thing associated with that part of like central asia um i the like in Tsarist russia it's kind of before world war one um they'd kind of kind of usurped the culture and that they kind of saw that it was a very quick to quick to digest protein and the kind of the czars and the shahs of the Caspian Basin, they actually um, instilled a caviar tax on caviar farmers where they would take a large percentage of everyone's catch. So it, that's really kind of when it got its kind of gilded crown, I huh. would say. And so you mentioned digestible, digestible protein. Uh, so is that some of the first health effects? Was it just a luxury item? It, it, it's funny. It feels like the pendulum of what caviar was swung back and forth a lot. It, it it certainly did. Yeah. So they, you know, when when one was pregnant, when one's queen was pregnant, um, they, they, it was thought that they should eat a lot of caviar because it was very healthy and kept kept them, you know, from falling sick. Also, young children were fed, fed a lot, fed a lot of it, um, as well as people with just various ailments. It was almost like a like a solver, some sort of um, kind of homeopathic therapy. So little did we know, with the fall of the USSR, would also be the fall of that kind of aristocratic caviar around the world. Yes. Or at least a big shift. Right, right. It's also kind of geographically. The geography has a large effect as well. Even 
even with the USSR, if you lived next to a large caviar-producing caviar waterway, um, there was caviar, you know, morning, noon, and night. Um, after the fall of the USSR, um, uh, you know, privatizing, privatization in Russia, very little regulation, the fish were overfished a lot. So, like, the annual catch in 1989 versus 2005 went down 10%, to 10% of the original, so down 90%. So, so I know there are a lot of words that I don't understand on the Pearl Street Caviar uh, website. Um, this idea of what open pen aqua farms are and why that is more important for these fish or, or these rows. What, what is the quality of fish now versus 200 years ago in the Hudson? And what might be making caviar better now that we have you know, smarter technology, know how to interact with these fish? Um, so, yeah, at Pearl Street, we, s- we seeked out an open pen aqua farm because it kind of was the best kind of um, it was the most similar to the, the Hudson River and kind of the environment that the fish were brought up in. They, you know, swim around in water that starts in the mountain and flows out to the sea. Um, we thought that was very important and kind of, again, just associating the, the caviar that we, we provide with the uh, local waterway. So you get your caviar, you get your fish from this pristine lake uh in some mountain region in Central Asia. Yeah. Um, so you, you aren't actually trying to produce local caviar, but is that something that you aspire to do someday? Perhaps down the road. Right now we have a, a nice, uh, growing, wonderful relationship with a farm that's been doing it right for about 30 years. Um, and, uh, you know, if we can take those lessons stateside in the future, by all means, you know, Adirondack caviar, here we come. <laughs> uh what, what, what's so funny about this whole discussion is that th- there was some pivotal point uh, in your life, and it was in discussing or researching uh, NBA players that you decided, um, or you know, basketball players in general, that you decided uh, there was something there that they were enjoying, that they were eating, that they were partaking in, that might be a business venture someday. So w- why why did the basketball turn into a different kind of orb um again that goes back to why why the 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 shahs and the uh the czars were eating a lot of caviar um it it it's full of very quickly and easily digestible protein um it's full of electrolytes you know the the choline the selenium the omega-3s the b12s that you spoke of in the beginning they're all very important for a body after it's been through a rigorous uh exercise um, also, you know, caviar also has this extremely heavy connotation of kind of being this, you know, fancy schmancy, exclusive, prestigious stuff. Um, and the kind of the proliferation of these of these farms um, is kind of why uh, we're taking it back to how it was, you know, long ago in Russia and of course in the U.S. when the Hudson River was um, so bountiful. Um, and that's kind of people ate it because they wanted to eat it, not because they wanted to show off. Yeah, where where does it lay now? Is it is it a showy thing? Is it a sustainable thing? Is it a snacky thing? Um, I mean, it depends. It depends where you encounter it. Honestly, we, our our goal is that it's it's definitely sustainable. Um, you know, our whole supply chain that's you know number one on the list. Um, and 
you know, sure, you can show it off if you're Saturday night party, but you can also snack on the leftovers on Sunday. Um, I think it's just, it's a much more versatile food than it's kind of been uh, kind of the corner that's been shoved into over the last, you know, 30 years. Well, on that, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to snack on some caviar. I mean, it is like late afternoon on a Tuesday, perfect time to do so. Tuesdays are the best. (laughs) You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Allison Kane, and I'm the host of In the Sauce here on HRN. Now that I'm expanding my cooking school to a sauce line in grocery stores, I need all the help I can get. And I want to help other entrepreneurs build their brands too. You can find In the Sauce wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And here I'm about to crack some tins with Craig Page of Pearl Street Caviar, as one should do every Tuesday afternoon while listening to this show. Um, first of all, tell me what the caviar was wrapped in. You just unfurled this newspaper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so our, our caviar comes wrapped in um, kind of a recycled newspaper. It's not quite the Wall Street Journal. It's kind of, it's kind of a stylish uh, magazine. We mm-hmm. pick and choose kind of the, the garbage pile at, at the, not the garbage pile. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, the, it's the returns of the, of the uh, from the publisher that don't sell at like Barnes and Noble and yeah. things like that. Yeah. That was like the first thing I wondered because caviar is often associated with maybe white tablecloth restaurants or special occasions. But you just rode the subway over here uh, with with some tins of caviar, you know, wrapped in some newspaper. And right now are opening, and this was unplanned, a bag of Route 11 potato chips. Thank you to our sponsor. Um, why, why are we pairing high with low right now? Or do you even consider them high and low? I think we're... we're Pairing quality with quality. Um, no, it's a Tuesday afternoon. It's not our, our aunt's law firm retirement party. I actually really think it goes very well with potato chips. Um, and I think the chips go well with it. So, so but Let's talk about your caviar business in general, because you're, you're trying to make this an egalitarian thing, trying to make this accessible to all. Um, in doing so, not only repositioning the concept of what caviar is, uh, you're offering different ways of delivering this in small little tins and in you know personal size things you don't have to invest in this large antiquated way of you know having a huge dinner party and spending a ton of money just to be able to enjoy caviar anymore 
Right. Um, we want people to uh, occasionally just, you know, have a little caviar at home alone um, because it's, again, it has all these health health qualities. Um, it's delicious. And it, you know, it might make you kind of <laughs> appreciate that alone time a little bit more as well. Is it an aphrodisiac? I had to ask. <laughs> they say it is quite an aphrodisiac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's go over these tasting notes because you have two different kinds. Um I've heard the word beluga for years, but I had never heard the word kaluga. Can right. you explain to me what the difference is? Yes. So beluga, I mean, just quick, the, the kind of nuts and bolts are beluga is like very, very, it's a very threatened species. It's native to the Caspian Sea. It's kind of the biggest, baddest um, sturgeon species out there. Um, like if you watch like the Bond movies, they're always ordering beluga. Um it's currently not legal to even farm in the U.S. Um, Kaluga is kind of, it's also a, from Asia. It's also a river sturgeon. It's also extremely big. It can grow up to uh, like a 25, 2,500 pounds, up to 100 years old. It's from farther east in Asia in the Emmer River, um, which is actually between Russia and China. Uh, can, can I just point out what what I loved about first meeting you and seeing and tasting your caviar is that to open up your tins, you have this little keychain. You have this little can opener of a thing. It's custom, right? That that It is. Uh, seeing that makes it feel so street. Makes oh. gives it this 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 cachet, this credibility that I haven't seen in caviar before. Excellent. Well, I can tell you where that, how that came to be. <laughs> Please. Our customer service number used to be my cell phone, and all the, num- all the calls were, how do I open the tins? <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Um, yeah, it, it's a nifty little thing. It ends up on people's keychains. Um, you know, it doubles as a flathead screwdriver. Um, yeah, we think it's a nifty little thing. Uh, now, let, let's talk about the two different kinds of caviar we have open. If, if I were to look at them and say... The differences are simply black and green. There's a lot more that goes into it. Yes. Um, they're, they're different price points. And they're also, they're, they're, they have a very different flavor profile. And maybe, maybe you'd want to read the descriptions or... Oh, yeah. But you, you have to pronounce the species. Siberian Select, the species yes. is... Oh, you're gonna. You're <laughs> <laughs> it's Asapenser berry. Bear, yeah, we used yeah. to just call it a berry. Yeah, <laughs> but but it is delicate black pearls, naturally raised uh, Siberian sturgeon, complex essence of the sea, velvety smooth finish, hint of fruitless fruitness. Twenty four seven caviar, delicious part of an invigorating breakfast, rewarding midnight snack, and every nosh in between. Yeah. Um, so. Usually the cliff notes on the Siberian Select is that it's the 24-7 caviar. Um, it, it pairs well with a lot of things. A lot of chefs use it in very complicated dishes with a lot of other strong flavors. Um, some people prefer it to the Kaluga, but it, it, its price point is 40% less. So it, it's, it's more approachable in that regard as well. I mean, throw out some prices. What is the cost of caviar these days? It varies wildly. Um, the, the, the two tens that we have in front of us, one is 25 and the other one is 44. I mean, that ain't crazy anymore. No, it's, it's not that crazy. It's not that crazy. Um, it's, it's not, it's not a hot dog and a Sprite. 
Um, it's cheaper than a burger sometimes in Manhattan, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can you can probably spend more in a smoothie as well. Yeah. So, is is that a single portion I'm seeing in front of me? You know, that that's also the thing you've, or at least I've experienced caviar in such small portions before because it's seen as this delicacy, and maybe right. part of that is associated with price point, but. How much, how overzealous can we get about caviar and it still be a fun, exciting thing to eat? I think the sky is the limit in terms of getting overzealous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in terms of consumption, I think um, you know both of these are there are twelve grams, which you know to, it's about a hundred calories each. So if you're like going for that you know, low calorie snack, but with all the good stuff for you, it's great. Um, you know, we, people have been, the latest fads have really focused a lot on very bad tasting, low calorie crackers. Um, these will, these will keep people obsessed with, obsessed with those alive and, uh, full of nutrients. I didn't wait for you to have my first bite. (laughs) Well done. Uh, why potato chips? Um, I I like I like the the crunchiness relative to the, the kind of pop of the the caviar. They're gluten free. Um, they're easy on the go things. You know this little bag. I you know had it just tucked in my bag with these little tins. Um, I mean we also you know I have nothing against blinis, which are kind of the the classical thing. Um, I think that the potato chip kind of lets it sing a little bit more. It doesn't have that kind of sweet um, kind of some some bellinis can be a little overpowering. Also, um, you know they're they're not that simple to make. Well, they are that simple to make, but um, it's it's a little bit more of a process. If when you're sitting at home, I'm not sure you'd want to whip up the bellini. Mm-hmm. And then Kaluga, K-E-L-U-G-A, not yeah. Maluga. Yeah. Um, its species is Huso Shrenreki. I did that totally wrong. But that it was ha- pretty good. It has plump pearls. It's glittery golden hue, buttery in texture, richly flavored but feather light on your tongue. I love that description. Uh, subtle sweet notes of hazelnut and sumptuous fi- uh, finish that lingers on your mind. So, it, who, first of all, who wrote these things? Because they're just great. They're just um, wonderful. It was it was a team effort, and you know we we definitely tossed it around a lot. We didn't want to just kind of inundate the the potential customer with Latin words that don't mean much um, to them. Uh, and we thought that we want to kind of make it more conversational, kind of make it so you know it, it linger lingers on your mind. I think that people, you know, people like things that linger on their mind, right? Especially in a good way. <laughs> yeah, no, it really does. That's why I wasn't able to speak for a second. This one is, is like so much more olfactory. Right. Like you can breathe this one in and out. Um, wow, I love that one. I might be yeah. a Kaluga fan. Right, I mean, if you ask, I, I, I agree with you, but my team is probably 60-40 towards Siberian. No, I, I love the accessibility of the Siberian. And let, let's talk about recipes in a second, because I, I and Heritage Radio can't thank you enough for participating in our winter fundraiser, because we collaborated with the wonderful people of Colson, um, and we did a grilled cheese sandwich. Well, 
a caviar grilled cheese sandwich, which might have been the bite of the night. Um, It's so good. I mean, you get the creaminess of the cheese, but and the crunchiness of the bread, but the caviar kind of mimics both of those things. Where else do you see it, you know, being in everyday recipes rather than having to go to a Michelin star restaurant? Like, where can caviar firmly sit? I don't, I don't think caviar needs a firm seat. It, it, it's, actually, it's a very adaptable um, ingredient. It's, I think it's very good straight. Um, I've, seen, I've seen people do all sorts of wild stuff with it. Um, we have a partner that's doing a plantain uh, caviar pairing, um, which is absolutely delicious. Uh, plantain chip, so it's another play on the chips. Um, I've seen it on nachos. I've seen it in quesadillas. Um, I've seen it in those, you know, very greasy little bugle things. Oh, I like that, like a cornet of caviar. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it looks like an ice cream cone. I've seen it on ice cream. We actually have a partner that's putting it on ice cream. Ooh, who is that? uh, It's uh, Mikey Likes It ice cream. They're going to actually launch next to the Barclays Center in a a few weeks. Um, So, yeah, it's, you know, the play of, you know, salty, sweet, salted chocolate caviar ice cream. It's fantastic. Um... Yeah, it's, it's, if you need that little, you know, the, the caviar, salty, kind of the, the sea, the sea, you know, mindset, throw some caviar on anything. Scrambled uh, eggs. Yeah, <laughs> certainly, I mean, egg, eggs and eggs makes sense <laughs> right. to me. The New York Times just recently had a collection of caviar recipes. Yep. Um, there was a caviar sandwich by Gabrielle Hamilton that was, I think, chopped eggs and creme fraiche and chives and, of course, caviar. Um, Eric Repair had some croquemonsieur with caviar on top, which was decadently awesome. And Melissa Clark had caviar potato chips with this lemon cream. Mm. Um, I get it, food with food, but for so long, other than champagne, I've heard that caviar does not pair with certain wines because it makes wines maybe taste a little metallic. Is that total bullshit? Is that I mean, an old wives' tale? <laughs> Treats their own, really. Yeah. Um, We've done a bunch of pairings with all sorts of different kinds of wine. Um, I yeah, if you're, I think it's really a a, a taste, a, a personal choice. Um, we've lately we've been seeing a lot of sake uh, caviar pairing actually, and then you know you've been hearing it for years now, but people are also drinking their Budweiser with their caviar. Um, Where have I been all these years? Uh, I have not heard this. <laughs> Tell me more. How do you do it? Is it you put it on the rim or you, you just do a bump yeah, off the hand? Yeah, and... the chip. You know, I prefer it with a Tecate, not a not a not a Budweiser. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of a lot of different flavors. Um, it's it's been paired with booze at bars for hundreds of years. You know, back in when the Hudson was so prolific, it was it was the it was that salty peanut snack at, at the downtown pub that would make you order the next drink that was that was caviar are we going to see that in some of our shoreman's bars in the, in the <laughs> carroll garden cobble hill area i'd love to see atlantic avenue lined with caviar snacks <laughs> we'll see we'll see have, have you returned as a hotties have have you tasted customers because let's explain what zahadis is uh, you walk in and you take a ticket because it has all the bulk food up front and then has one of the greatest international pantries I've ever seen. Um, and I, I love shopping there. And uh, Charlie and his family are so genuine and so kind of kind. And, you know, 
they know most people by name that shop there as well. Um, does caviar have a place in a place like Zahadi's now? I think it does. I think it does. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to see what we can do. Yeah, <laughs> gonna have to talk to Charlie. And the kids. Yeah, yeah. I'll have my I'll have my mom do the talking, and it would go a lot better. <laughs> I mean, now that you're in the biz, let's talk about your family. Is there an expectation that there is caviar at every meal every time everyone comes home? <laughs> I, yeah, I have a, I have this, I have a niece who's two years old and, you know, put it on the, put it on the bread so I don't have to, you know, shell out quite as much. She just licks it off the bread and then dips the bread back in and licks it off again. So the the bread has become a spoon. Um, but you know, she's, she's, you know, going to be our lead spokesperson pretty soon. Um, yeah, there's, there's more pressure to, to bring caviar around than there was before, especially because. There was none before. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when we first talked, you were talking about, you know, the, the what you said, these are 12, 12 grams. Indeed. About making even smaller versions, little to-go packs that you right, can have, like a right. sampling. Is that something still of interest? Uh, yeah, well, it's on the way, the, the kinetic caviar. Uh, um, yeah, it's smaller portion still. It's right in the 90 calorie range. And um, it's kind of to kind of, you know, if you're eating it alone and you feel sheepish opening a tin, you can just kind of do this kind of single serving kind of paper tube of caviar. Um, it's in the works and it's, you know, the price point, we're going to be able to get it done really low. We're aiming for $12 for a good, you know, it could be maybe six chips worth of caviar, just like a good taste or cover up a couple of scrambled eggs. Um, and then, you know, we're getting into more reasonably priced smoothie, smoothie range. Um, so yeah, we're working hard to get there and it's been exciting. Do you think that will help? I mean, I don't want to make an assumption, but I I think a lot of people haven't had caviar. Um, you know, how many people in the world do you think, aside from those caviar regions, uh, you know, that go to Zahadi's have ever tasted caviar outside of fish row and terra masalata? I think very few. I, you know, my, my, uh, sample size isn't that big, but... Um, I'd never seen it until I was well into my twenties. Um, and I grew up, you know, right on, right four blocks from Atlantic Avenue. So this is something you're, you're introducing caviar to people who have always thought of it as so, so pricey, so expensive that it was out of the realm of possibilities. Yeah, that's the goal. We want, we want more people to kind of embrace it and not be put off by the kind of stuffy white tablecloth nose turned up reputation that it's definitely gleaned over the last century or so but you also hope that it stays in that place too and you can sell to those chefs and restaurants (laughs) well our product is still absolute top notch yeah (laughs) i mean that's a dichotomy it's not a high low thing as you said like it pairing with potato chips it's a quality and quality thing so it's about using really good caviar well Exactly, exactly. And not getting caught up in, in the kind of in the, in the, there's some, there's some innovative storytelling, imaginative storytelling in, in the caviar world. And it's important to kind of see through some stuff that's kind of there just to pump up the price rather than give you quality for, for your investment. Um, well, so th- dispel that. What what are those fish stories? My fish is this big that we shouldn't believe. <laughs> if someone's selling you beluga in the U.S., it's not beluga, or it's uh, 
you know, black market stuff and, you know, might have been killing a, you know, an endangered fish. Um, that's a big one. Um, and then, you know, there's, there are a lot of words in the caviar space, like royal, prestige, uh, and a lot of this is kind of, it's actually separating the, the, the grades of like one species of caviar so that like a fish provides a bunch of caviar and kind of take like the, the most mature eggs, the biggest ones, put them off to the side. And obviously these are very scarce and, um, you know, people, you know, five, 10 X the price for that royal prestige caviar that was actually from the same fish as the the lesser price stuff. Um, yeah, it, the 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 qualities that connote high price in caviar have very little to do with the quality of the product, and we're we're kind of trying to just do the, you know the value for the quality. I'm back at the Kaluga, letting it linger on my mind a little <laughs> bit more, but yes, th- this is such a treat to be able to have you on and have this on a Tuesday, but. I can see myself having this every day. Not not that I'm going to go out and buy tins and tins and caviar and live this luxurious life, but from what it is, even from a flavor standpoint, from an enjoyment standpoint, it doesn't make me feel like I have to be in a specific setting to you know have it. And wiping that preconception away um, and getting a lot more people just taste it for the first time and appreciate it outside of that um, is, is a tall order. Is this right, an exciting right. it's part exciting. of being a business? It's exciting. Owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's super exciting, and it's very interesting to just meet new people and just see how they perceive caviar. How per- caviar has built up in their mind over the years, and you know what we have to do to get them to, you know, open their mind to enjoying it um, on a more regular basis. Well, it, let's end with one thing: Pearl Street caviar. The, there was intent in why you chose the name for that business. Right. Twofold. Twofold. So Pearl Street actually exists in Brooklyn and in downtown Manhattan. Um, so when, when um, kind of the, the core of the team that became Pearl Street Caviar um, had noticed that these athletes were recovering with caviar from time to time, um, that actually occurred on a... Uh, a nice dinner on Pearl Street in Brooklyn. And then Pearl Street in Manhattan is actually historically where they did the the processing and the harvesting of caviar um, out of the Hudson and out of the New York City waterways. So a, a double whammy, and we also think it's, think it's uh, you know, it has a certain charm. Bring Pearl Street back to Pearl Street. Indeed. Right, so, well, thank you for bringing caviar to the station today. And yes, you can all go out and get this. This is accessible. This is real, and it's delicious. Uh, try some Siberian Select, some Kaluga, and uh, maybe Craig will pop a tin for you with this cool little keychain contraption. Thank you again for being on. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Root 11 Potato Chips, delicious with caviar, music by Cookies, and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
for our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 